This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Basics of Pediatric Trauma Assessment and Management by Dr. Michelle Nushrenko. I'm Michelle Nushrenko, Staff Physician in the Division of Emergency Medicine. Today's topic is the emergency evaluation of pediatric trauma. The objectives of today's talk are to review the burden of traumatic disease, review the trauma assessment, and to go through some illustrative cases to provide you information on trauma resuscitation and trauma procedures. Trauma is a very large topic, and not all subjects can be covered in one lecture. Today, we will not be covering head injury, C-spine clearance, and C-spine injury, or orthopedic trauma. Burden of Trauma the burden of traumatic disease is disproportionate to the low and middle income developing world. South America, Africa, and Southeast Asia bear the brunt of traumatic disease worldwide. The distribution of traumatic injury is about 25% road traffic accidents, self-inflicted violence, interpersonal violence, or other traumatic injuries such as drowning, falls, poisoning, or burns. Road traffic accidents account for the largest portion of traumatic injuries worldwide at 25%. Of the world's total road traffic accidents, greater than 90% of them occur in developing countries. This is projected to increase approximately 80% by the year 2020. Victims of trauma are more likely to die within the first hour or usually at the scene of the injury, or after six hours, leaving us with a golden window to intervene between one and three hours, which is the most important time for trauma care. The discussion of this lecture will focus on that time period. Trauma Assessment A systemized approach to trauma evaluation was developed in 1980 in the form of Advanced Trauma Life Support. This is an organized and systematic approach to trauma, treatment, and procedures related to trauma. This is now taught in 47 countries worldwide. The trauma assessment starts with the primary survey. During the primary survey, you start by assessing the airway, or A, to make sure it's patent, and that the cervical spine has been immobilized. You then assess breathing, or B, to maintain ventilation and assess the quality of ventilations. You then assess circulation, or C, and control hemorrhages whenever you find them, accessibility to perfuse, followed by D, or disability, which is assessing the neurologic status of the patient. You then assess exposure, or E, and maintain environmental, or E, control by keeping the patient warm and monitoring them for temperature changes or other injuries throughout the body. To provide a more detailed review of airway, or A, you need to make sure the airway is patent. A talking patient is maintaining a patent airway. A patient who is moaning may be maintaining a patent airway, but very difficult to assess, and you should reassess this frequently. A patient who's not making any noises or sounds from the airway is considered unmaintainable. If a patient is moaning, snoring, or making other abnormal airway sounds, you may try to open their airway using the jaw thrust maneuver by placing a nasal or oral airway or maintaining them in cervical spine immobilization throughout both of these procedures. If the airway is not maintainable, you should intubate them or provide advanced airway support. 
Breathing, or B, should be assessed by listening for breath sounds bilaterally. You should feel for chest excursion to make sure the chest is expanding symmetrically, and check pulse oximetry whenever available to assess oxygenation capacity. It's also important to visually inspect the chest wall for traumatic injuries that may give you a clue to underlying diagnoses. If the patient is not breathing comfortably, you should provide supplemental oxygen in the form of 100% non-rebreather, or by bag mask ventilation if the patient needs respiratory support for insufficiency or poor function. Circulation, or C, should be assessed by assessing skin color. Is the patient pale or mottled? Palpate the pulses. Are they strong? Are they weak, thready, or absent? In the distal and central areas, such as radial, femoral, and carotid. You should identify any visible signs of external hemorrhage through any open wounds or fractures and control them with direct pressure. In the instance of extremity fracture with significant bleeding or extremity amputation or partial amputation, a tourniquet should be applied. You should then continue to assess the hemodynamics of the patient and the requirements for fluid resuscitation or vasopressive support. During your assessment and circulation, you may find signs and symptoms consistent with shock, such as tachycardia, hypotension, poor perfusion, alteration in mental status. There are three different types of shock in trauma. The first type is hypovolemic, usually due to hemorrhage and blood loss. Cardiogenic, which can be related to blunt chest trauma resulting in abnormal cardiac function, or obstructive shock from tension pneumothorax or cardiac tamponade. We'll review these specific diagnoses later in this discussion. In assessing states of shock in pediatrics, vital signs are incredibly important. Monitoring for signs of blood loss by watching the heart rate and blood pressure can be vital in a pediatric patient. Pediatric patients are more likely to be tachycardic and less likely to be hypotensive until they've lost significant blood, as demonstrated in the table showing pediatric vital signs over the various stages of mild, moderate, and severe shock. It's also important to monitor a respiratory rate as patients become more tachypneic as their perfusion decreases. When looking for signs of blood loss, if there are no obvious external hemorrhages or extremity injuries, other places to look include the chest for hemothorax, pelvis for solid organ injury or vessel injury bleeding, retroperitoneum, or the thigh due to closed femur fracture. If blood loss is noted or suspected in a closed cavity, resuscitation should begin immediately before proceeding with the rest of your survey on disability and exposure. An IO or IV should be placed immediately for fluid resuscitation. Resuscitating initially with crystalloid for one bolus or two if blood is unavailable is acceptable. However, blood is the resuscitation fluid of choice after one bolus, as blood loss is the most likely cause of the hypotension. Obtaining O negative or O positive blood for transfusion and resuscitation as soon as possible is a critical component to trauma resuscitation. The disability evaluation, or D, starts with a mental status or a Glasgow Coma Scale or modified Glasgow Coma Scale assessment, followed by pupil size and reactivity, lateralizing signs such as paralysis, hypertonicity, or focal seizure, and then spinal cord level assessment, including motion and dermatomes. The Glasgow Coma Scale assesses eye opening, verbal response, and best motor response. For verbal children greater than age eight, this is an appropriate scale for assessment. Anyone with a Glasgow Coma Scale score of less than eight is mentating poorly, and caution with their airway should be taken, and most likely intubation will be required.
Children less than age eight cannot perform on the normal Glasgow Coma Scale as their verbal responses are not that of an adult. For that, there's the pediatric or modified Glasgow Coma Scale, which assesses best eye response, best verbal response, and motor on a pediatric scale, but still creates the same scoring. And again, children with a score of less than eight are mentating poorly and caution may be needed with their airway and potentially intubation. The final assessment area is exposure or environment, or E. You should remove all clothing from the patient and visually inspect the entire body for signs of traumatic injury, such as bruising, abrasions, lacerations, or hematomas. You need to assess the patient's temperature to ensure they're not hypo or hyperthermic. And then once your assessment is finished, ensure the patient maintains normal body temperature by keeping them warm or cool depending on your environment. After you've assessed A, B, C, D, and E, you've completed your primary survey. After the primary survey is the secondary survey. The secondary survey is a detailed physical exam focused on looking for signs of traumatic injury. You should not perform the secondary survey until all components of the primary survey have been completed, including stopping at each stage, A, B, C, D, and E, to assess and fix potential life-threatening injuries or complications. The secondary survey includes a full history, including current events, or HPI, past medical history, medications, allergies, immunizations. It's a detailed head-to-toe physical examination and neurologic exam, with special attention paid to the head, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Reevaluation once you've completed your primary and secondary survey is key as new signs and symptoms may develop over time. When you are completing your secondary survey, it's important to be sure you've log rolled or maintained cervical spine immobilization and back straight the patient to the side so you can assess their back for any injuries that may not be visible due to the patient's position. Cases. We'll now do some illustrative cases to walk you through the steps of trauma evaluation and identify conditions in their management. Case one is a four-year-old who was brought into the emergency room or your clinic by taxi. The patient was brought by their father and is moaning but not speaking. And so instead of the typical approach of taking a history and examining the child, the father has reported to you that this child sustained traumatic injury. So instead of what would you like to know, you should be thinking, what would you like to do? And focusing on your primary assessment. For this child, the airway assessment, the father told you the patient is moaning. So it has a maintainable airway for the moment, but caution is advised as the patient is not speaking clearly. As part of airway management, this child came fresh from the scene and has no neck stabilization or C-spine immobilization in place. You should place this child in C-spine immobilization, either using a cervical spine collar, if available, or by using two rolled towels, sheets, pieces of clothing at the sides of the head next to the ears and have the child lying flat and so the neck cannot move from either side or bend forward. Once the C-spine has been immobilized and the patient's continuing to moan and maintain their airway, you may move on to breathing. When you auscultate the chest of this child, the breathing is shallow and there are no breath sounds on the right. You note the trachea to be deviated to the left. Instead of moving on to the third component of the primary survey, you should stop here as you obtain significant abnormalities on physical exam during your assessment of the breathing. This child has signs and symptoms consistent with tension pneumothorax, as demonstrated by the absent breath sounds on the right and the deviation of the trachea on the left.
with a child who's not arousable and moaning. This child needs an immediate needle decompression. To needle decompress attention pneumothorax, an angiocath or a catheter for an IV needs to be placed directly through the chest wall at the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line of the affected side. And so for this child, you'd place the catheter in the right chest in the second intercostal space above the rib to avoid hitting the nerve artery and vein that run below deep enough until you feel a rush of air coming out of the catheter. This relieves the tension pneumothorax and allows you time to place a tube thoracostomy. Tension pneumothorax is summarized as asymmetric diminished breath sounds, chest pain, respiratory distress, hypotension, and tracheal deviation. Causes in trauma include blunt chest trauma or high pressure mechanical ventilation. An open pneumothorax for comparison is when there's a large defect of the chest wall or an open wound. This creates sucking in of the chest wall and ineffective respiration as the lung is being compressed. If the wound is greater than two-thirds the diameter of the trachea, air will preferentially enter through the defect, collapsing the lung. To treat an open pneumothorax, you need a sterile occlusive dressing to seal off the air entry and to force air to enter preferentially through the trachea. This can be done by taking a piece of foil or a foil wrapper from gauze or equipment and taping it on three sides over the open wound. This will allow air to exit when the patient expires, but not allow air to enter when the patient inspires. So in summary, case one demonstrates the assessment of the airway and breathing with the stop due to attention pneumothorax and obstructive shock. And we reviewed the background of open pneumothorax and treatment for that condition. Case two is a 13-year-old who is at a political rally. Shots were fired. He is found lying on the ground when the crowd clears and brought to the emergency department or your clinic. Again, instead of thinking, what would I like to know? You should be asking yourself, what will I do? You should approach this patient with a traumatic injury, again, using the primary survey methodology of A, B, C, D, E. So to assess this patient, he is C-spine immobilized by the nurses in your clinic and is moaning. And so has a maintainable airway with a cervical spine that is being protected. When you assess his breathing, his breathing appears shallow and there are no breath sounds on the right. His trachea is midline, and as you inspect the chest, there is a bullet hole on the right side with no exit wound in the back. Instead of continuing on to assess your circulation, you found a significant traumatic injury that requires immediate intervention. This patient most likely has a hemothorax or blood in the pleural space due to his penetrating chest wound from the bullet. This patient requires immediate tube thoracostomy or chest tube. The goal of a chest tube is to immediately evacuate blood from the pleural space and to inflate the lung that has been collapsed by the blood. A large caliber tube is placed to avoid clotting of blood in the tube. Placement of a pigtail is contraindicated in traumatic injury due to risk of clotting. After you place your chest tube, which will be reviewed in other lectures, you should assess how much blood is put out. If greater than 1,500 mLs of blood evacuates immediately in a child above the age of 12 or an adult-sized child, that patient may require immediate operative intervention due to significant blood loss. For a child under the age of 12 or smaller than adult size, if greater than 200 milliliters per hour is evacuated from the tube, that child will also require operative intervention for ongoing bleeding. So in summary, case two reviews a penetrating chest injury that resulted in a hemothorax.
with the need for immediate intervention of chest tube or tube thoracostomy. Case three is a nine-year-old male transported eight hours to the emergency department or your clinic who was in a rollover crash of an embassy convoy. The child is awake and anxious appearing. Again, instead of thinking, what would you like to know? You should be thinking, what would you like to do? And reviewing your A, B, C, D, E primary assessment format. For this child, the airway is maintainable. He is anxious, moaning and talking, and his C-spine has been immobilized by those who are traveling with him. On assessing his breathing, his breast sounds are clear bilaterally. He is in no distress and there is no obvious chest wall injury. You assess his circulation or C. He has a normal heartbeat, no murmurs, one plus femoral pulses, and weak thready radial and posterior tibial pulses. You assess his disability status. He has no obvious deformities. He is spontaneously moving all extremities and is cooperative with exam. For exposure, you remove all of his clothing and assess for any other injuries that were not easily visible while clothed and find none. He is normothermic and you wrap him back up again. You've now completed your primary survey and are able to move on to your secondary survey. You start by obtaining a history from the adults who are with the child. They report he is generally healthy, takes no medication, has no allergies, and they are unsure of his vaccination status. You then proceed to do a detailed head-to-toe physical exam, starting with vital signs. His temperature is 37.4 degrees Celsius. His heart rate is 140 beats per minute. His respiratory rate is 18 breaths per minute. His blood pressure is 76 over 40 for this nine-year-old child, and his saturation is 98% on room air. His head, ears, eyes, nose, and throat exam shows him to be normal cephalic with an atraumatic skull. Pupils are equal round reactive to light with exterior ocular movements intact. His facial bones are intact. His tympanic membranes are gray with no hemotympanum and his dentition are intact. His neck is immobilized. On palpation, he has no C-spine tenderness. His chest is clear and symmetric breast sounds bilaterally with no external chest wall injuries or bruising. His cardiovascular exam shows a normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs. His pulses are one plus femoral and thready or barely palpable in his radial and dorsalis pedis areas. His abdomen is distended, it's firm, with guarding. He has ecchymosis over the abdomen in the left lower and right lower quadrants. His extremities show no deformities, dislocations, or fractures. And his neuro exam shows his cranial nerves to be intact five out of five strength and sensation bilaterally in the upper and lower extremities with downgoing toes on Babinski and normal deep tendon reflexes. On your detailed physical exam, you've noted some significant findings, including hypotension, tachycardia, abdominal distension, guarding, and abdominal bruising. This pattern of symptoms is consistent with blunt abdominal trauma. Patterns of injury are in the solid and the hollow viscous. Solid organ injuries include liver, kidney, or spleen lacerations. Hollow viscous injuries include laceration of the ureter or urethra and bowel wall perforation or bowel wall hematoma. Blunt abdominal trauma requires diagnostic imaging, except if the patient is unstable. For patients who are not maintaining their airway, are hypotensive, you feel have active bleeding or vital signs that are severely abnormal, the patient may be taken directly to the OR for surgical exploration and management. For patients who are stable, they should receive fluid resuscitation or blood, followed by a diagnostic assessment. Options for a diagnostic assessment include 
the FAST exam, or Focused Assessment in Trauma, which is done by ultrasound, and evaluates all four quadrants looking for free fluid or obvious solid organ injury. If ultrasound and a qualified ultrasonographer are not available, and you have CAT scan or CT available, that may be used to identify solid organ injury on immediate imaging. If neither of those two imaging modalities are available, a diagnostic peritoneal lavage, which is the installation of sterile IV fluid into the abdomen, and then the extraction of that fluid to assess for the presence of blood, may be completed. The extraction of blood in the fluid on diagnostic peritoneal lavage is 98% sensitive for intra-abdominal bleeding. The abdominal bruising that you've noted on this child is consistent with a seatbelt sign, or bruising from the areas where the seatbelt was overlying the abdomen. This is particularly common in children, as the solid organs, including the liver and the spleen, are often below the rib cage due to their developmental age and growth. When a seatbelt sign is present, the child is at greater risk for intra-abdominal injuries, specifically higher risk for bowel injury, such as hematoma or perforation. The presence of solid organ injury, such as liver or splenic laceration, is equal with and without a seatbelt sign present. Obtaining liver transaminases, or AST, ALT, is not helpful as transaminases are not predictive of solid organ injury. Once you've identified a liver laceration, you need to decide if the management is surgical or medical. Surgical liver lacerations include those that are large with hemodynamic compromise. If you have the ability to grade your liver at laceration based on your diagnostic imaging, surgical intervention is required for grade five and grade six. Grades one through four can be observed and managed medically. Medical management for a liver laceration includes maintaining volume by using crystalloid fluid or transfusing blood and by monitoring the patient for signs of decompensation. Monitoring is often done in the hospital setting and is done at least 24 hours plus the number of the grade of the liver laceration. And so for example, a grade two liver laceration would be admitted for one day plus their grade of injury, which is two, so for a total of three days. Once a patient has been stabilized and is ready for discharge, the patient should restrict their activity for a significant amount of time. This is also based on the grade of the injury, and the grade of the injury becomes the number of weeks activity should be restricted, plus one week. So again, for a grade two liver laceration, the patient should not return to activities such as playing, roughhousing, riding motorbikes, bicycles, or doing any work if the child is an older teenager for one week due to injury and two more weeks due to the grade of their laceration for a total of three weeks. Similar to liver lacerations, splenic lacerations are managed surgically and medically. Grade five or complete fracture of the spleen or interruption of the hilar vessels, grade four, are managed operatively due to significant bleeding. Grades one through three, if this grading is available to you based on your diagnostic imaging, are managed medically. If you do not have appropriate diagnostic imaging, your decision can be made based on the stability of the patient after fluids and blood resuscitation. For medical management of splenic lacerations, again, the patient should be hospitalized for one day plus the number of days of the grade of the laceration. So for example, a grade three splenic laceration would be hospitalized for one day plus three days due to the grade for a total of four days. After hospitalization, when the patient is discharged, management is similar to that of a liver laceration. The patient should restrict activity to avoid further injury, including restricting play, bicycle, motorbike, 
or any work that the child may do. The patient should rest for at least one week plus the number of weeks for the grade of the splenic laceration. So for example, for a grade three splenic laceration, the patient should rest for one week plus three weeks for a total of four weeks. In summary, case three highlights abdominal trauma, solid organ and hollow viscous organ injury, including lacerations to the liver, kidney, spleen, bowel wall perforation or bowel wall hematoma. In summary, this lecture has reviewed the burden of traumatic disease, the practical assessment of the trauma patient, including the primary and secondary survey, or the detailed physical exam and trauma, has provided you with some familiarity with trauma procedures, and reviewed thoracic and abdominal trauma specifically. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.